Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CE curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hi, my name is uh, Dr. Atul Malhotra. I'm a professor of medicine, pulmonary critical care sleep medicine uh, specialist. I'm the research chief of the division here, and I run a big NIH-funded laboratory. I see a lot of patients. Um, we're here for the roundtable of experts recommend tools to diagnose and monitor excessive daytime sleepiness and obstructive sleep apnea. I'm here with my friend and fellow Red Sox fan, Dr. Christina Finch. I'll have her introduce herself. Hi, I'm Dr. Christina Finch, and I'm a clinical sleep doctor at UC San Diego and also on the faculty. Excited to be here. Christina, what are your thoughts on um, monitoring excessive sleepiness in people with sleep apnea? Yeah, so I think it's really important. I think it's often overlooked. Sometimes patients, you know, when we assume they're on sleep apnea treatment, that they're doing great. Um, but there's a significant portion of these patients who really do have ongoing daytime sleepiness that we really have to address. I think one of the rookie mistakes is people try and start reach for pharmacotherapy before they've monitored treatment appropriately. Do you find that as well? Absolutely. I think it's super important for us to make sure that they're adequately treated, not just, you know, check the box. Yes, I have the CPAP but that they're using it every night, ideally, um, for at least seven to nine hours, and that we're not seeing any excessive leak from their mask, and we're making sure that the residual events that they're having with the device is under our threshold. Yeah. Do you have any tricks if you do see residual apnea, how you troubleshoot, or is that kind of more individualized? Yeah, so it kind of depends on the person. Oftentimes, if there's any sort of mask concern whatsoever, if they've only ever tried one, I usually recommend trying a different style mask, or if they really love whatever style they have, just trying a different size or a different um, format within there. You troubleshoot the mask for residual apnea, because sometimes I'll order a titration because I'll find limb movements or I'll find uh, central apneas that weren't obvious in the history, or there's opioids that were, weren't disclosed or this kind of thing. Do you find Absolutely. that as well? Yeah. yeah, certainly a low threshold for, for doing a titration study to make sure we're not missing something else that can be contributing to the daytime sleepiness. Okay. And then if you do find somebody that's got legitimate sleepiness or you're concerned about them and they're using their CPAP adequately and they don't have residual disease and they don't have a lot of leak, what, what do you do next? Do you order tests or do you do an Epworth or what do you do? Yeah, so I love the Epworth. I think that's a great tool that we use in most of our clinics, even just kind of monitoring patients as they come in. Um, it's a really helpful tool. It takes just a couple moments for them to fill up before we even see them. And it kind of gives a good timeline of how they're doing over time. And if we're worried that that number is not improving, despite what we're doing, um, we can kind of look for other things. What's your approach? Yeah, you know, the Epworth's not for everybody. I, I recently had a patient respond to the question about, do you fall asleep in a theater or church? They said, I've never been to a theater or a church. So, you know, the questions are a bit antiquated from 1991 or whenever mm -hmm. Mary Johns published that, but sometimes it's the best we have. And, and I do use it clinically. Mm -hmm. We recently published data from Mozambique and just a lot of the questions are not relevant to. They don't apply. Yeah. To, they don't apply, but I still find it useful, particularly in the patients I'm seeing in San Diego. Yeah, I've actually seen some neat ones that are just visual representations. Like if you're fishing by the creek, you know, what your what your symptoms might be. So kind of changing that for the patient setting is really important. Yeah. And then do you order MSLTs and MWTs in this context or not really? Yeah, good question. So I typically don't order them, certainly not first line in this context. We usually reserve those when we're really concerned about narcolepsy or idiopathic hypersomnia. And oftentimes with these folks with residual sleep apnea or with residual sleepiness with sleep apnea, um, it's just not the the best setting. What about you? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I was recently involved in a Delphi conference, like a global consensus thing, and mm. it's not published yet, but I can sort of share that um, 
the MSLT and MWT are really not available in a lot of locations. There were global experts that said, yeah, we don't order those tests because we don't have them. So mm-hmm. we didn't put in the recommendations there to do that kind of testing. And honestly, even if they are available, I find the confidence intervals are so wide that if you do test, retest, reproducibility on MSLTs, it's kind of all over the place. So I occasionally use them in medical legal kind of settings, but beyond that, I don't really use them for management or for, for that kind of thing. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, are there patients you see that um, are sort of drug-seeking or that kind of thing where you find that they really don't have residual sleepiness and they're looking for medications? Because I don't think that's a big problem, even though people express concerns about it. Yeah, very rarely. I can count on maybe one hand the times that I've even thought about that. Most people, you know, they're just trying to do well in their daily life and wish they weren't as sleepy. So I think really taking those concerns um, as truths is important. What about you? Yeah, I I agree. And I'll often try people on medications just to see how they do. And I've used modafinil, I've used Silvriamfetol. I've had reasonably good success with both of those. Uh, Do you have um, a preference or do you have an order you choose in terms of medications? Yeah, so I usually start off with the modafinil or modafinil options first. Um, they're easier, usually easier to obtain with um, better pricing and more insurance coverage, uh, and they have a longer track record. So those are typically the ones I start with, but certainly if they're not effective, I move on to other options. Yeah, as you know, full disclosure, I was involved in some of the Solriamfetal studies, and so I'll disclose that to my patients, but mm-hmm. I do find the efficacy is pretty good and the side effects are pretty minimal, so I've Absolutely. had good success. And then the other warning I always give with modafinil and armodafinil is in premenopausal women, it interferes with birth control and their teratogenic. So I consider Absolutely. that a bit of a, a double whammy. So I'm careful about that. Very careful. Yeah. Good point. Perfect. So it looks like we're out of time, but it was really lovely talking to you about this. Yeah. Thank you, Christina. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME LLC and is part of our Minute CE curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.